Hello, I'm Donna Edda, and this is the Interested Podcast, a show that shares our collective wisdom to inspire health, love, and personal growth. In this interview with Kathy Kitsis, we will talk about what is a positive birthing experience. Kathy is a doula, a calm birth educator, and a massage therapist. This episode has been created to empower women who will be delivering their babies during this pandemic. Some are feeling anxious because uncertain measures may be in place at hospitals and birthing centers. I get it. It can be really scary. But there are things that can be done to guide women through this. This is not a medical conversation, so please talk to your doctors and midwife about the medical stuff. What we will cover is the emotional and mental challenges a woman might face before, during and after the birth of a child. Kathy will talk about what it means to be your own advocate during labor. She will share her struggle on postnatal depression, how she overcame it, and most importantly, what tools women can add to their toolbox to prepare for the arrival of the baby. I wish someone had told me all of this when I was pregnant because it has been a really hard journey for me. I hope you find this helpful. So without further ado, here is Kathy Kitsis. Hello, Kathy. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation and I urgently want to get this interview out because I think it's going to help a lot of women right now. And we're talking about positive birthing experience. You are a certified massage therapist and a doula. Yes. And a calm birth educator. That's right. I want to ask, what's the difference between a doula and a midwife? So a doula is non-medical support person. I don't cover anything. I can't do cervical checks. I don't listen to the baby. I don't do anything that's sort of medical related. It's very much a emotional and physical support person that a woman will choose. Essentially, what would have once been your mum or your sister or somebody, just an extra support person that knows a bit about birth, because most women going into birth these days have never seen birth. Of course, their husbands have never <laughs> been to a birth. They don't know what they're doing. And to have somebody that you've chosen, that you've met beforehand, that you have created a, a relationship with and a bond with, and, and someone that's going to be there then throughout the entire labor because often we go into the hospital, we get a shift change or something and it just helps women sort of just offers them that continuity of care, which is really important. And that leads us to the conversation that is so important. Now with COVID-19, a lot of women are not going to have the choice to have a doula or a supporting person in the delivering room. Or even potentially the husband. I mean, a lot of women don't have that choice anyway, given some hospitals policy, they don't allow or say they only allow one support person in. And obviously most women would choose their husband. So even in non-COVID times, that's an issue I think that should be looked at. But yes, particularly now they're limited to their husband and then their husband has depending on the hospital, depending on the country, there are certain, you know, rules and regulations on the husbands as well. So women are potentially facing a labor all on their own. What can people do to empower themselves to 
train for this on their own. And can you explain the difference between a positive birthing experience and a natural birthing experience? Because I think sometimes people get it confused. They think natural is the positive one. Yes, exactly. You can have a completely drug-free vaginal birth, but come out the other side completely traumatized because you might have felt out of control, not supported, scared, witless. Also, you could have a very um, empowered, calm, beautiful cesarean birth, for example. Just because you have a natural birth doesn't mean it's going to be good for you. The most important thing, what I tried to get across to women in saying that a positive birth is the most important thing is to be able to say that you felt safe and secure and supported and in control, even though obviously there are lots of things that aren't in our control, understanding beforehand what is in your control and therefore being in control of that is so important to being able to come through the other side and go, okay, we did the best we could with what we knew at the time. And looking back, I guess, with no regrets, I think that's a big important part of having a positive birth experience, not feeling traumatized by it. So in this conversation, I actually want to navigate the birthing system or as much as we can, because mm. it differs from country to country, city to city, public hospital versus private, hospital. right? Yeah. Yeah. Even from one doctor to the next, you know, it's everything's so different. Exactly. So I want to touch on some things that we can control. Cause one of the things you mentioned was control what you can control. That is a really big focus yes. and not the other yes. stuff. One of the things you also mentioned before was how to manage stress and anxiety and fear. These are the three things that could ultimately turn a birth into a positive or not positive experience. So let's start from the beginning. So before the actual delivery, what are some of the things women and their partners or family can do to prepare themselves? Educate yourself. How birth is designed to work, for one. The fact that the uterus is a muscle. I didn't know. I had twins vaginally and I had no idea that the uterus was a muscle and I was still able to give birth, right? But when you understand the whole design of it and, and which hormones will affect it, it makes such a difference then to be able to help it work efficiently in the way it is designed to work. So educating yourself about how birth is designed by nature to work and then what can affect that design, what things, what factors that we bring into then the way we birth today will have an impact. Some things can have a positive impact, okay, creating the right environment, the right support, all those sorts of things, and then other things will have a, a detrimental impact when we go into that fear response, you know, having a stressful time at the hospital. There are lots of things then that will negatively impact the way birth works. And then when it doesn't work very well, then we need more help. And then that leads to sometimes more stress and so on and so forth. And then you end up with what we call the sort of cascade of interventions. If you're not in a place of knowledge and understanding of what's happening, then very often some things that didn't necessarily need to happen happen but if you know what's going on and you understand things then if something does go wrong you can understand you say oh well that's okay that's fine that's probably why can we do something to change it no then we have to you know rely on the medical thing and, and you're able then to move on from that 
decision, knowing that you did the best thing that you could. And that leads you then to the, coming out that other side feeling less traumatized because you, you felt like you made informed decisions at the time instead of just reacting from a place of fear and like we didn't know any better and can make a big difference to the way you come out the other side. I actually did a course with you almost 10 years ago with my first child. Yeah, it must be because you were one of my very first couples. Yeah. Yeah, it would be 10 years. The experience was exactly what you said. We visualized what to expect, how my body was supposed to work. But then we also prepared ourselves for the worst case scenarios. You don't have to know every eventuality that could happen. That's the doctor's job. That's the hospital's, mm. that's their job. What you need to sort of do is learn, okay, the, the most common things that could come up, this, this. And then it's just more about having a little bit of confidence in the knowledge of how it works normally. And then if you have to deviate, sort of having the confidence to say, is this really necessary? Is it our only option? What if we don't do this? What are the risks? What are the benefits? Very often we don't take it that little step further and just say, you know, um, what can we do to help the situation? With a, a lot of people go in and, and they're passively waiting for this thing to happen instead of taking a little bit of, like I said, control in what they can mm. and go, well, is there anything that we can do to make it better, to get things to progress and having a bit more of a dialogue, I guess, with the, with the medical staff to be an active participant in the process as well. You can only do that if you've sort of educated yourself beforehand and learnt to have a bit of a trust in the process, trust in yourself. It also comes down to choosing the right people to have there, choosing a doctor that's going to be supportive of the type of birth you want, whether that's fully drug-free or whether that's a planned cesarean. It's all about choosing and optimizing your chances of having the type of birth you want. You wouldn't go to a birth center if you want to plan cesarean. Just like if you want a fully drug-free birth, then you've got to also choose a place that's going to give you the best chance of that happening. But for those who are going to the public hospital, they don't really get to choose a doctor and all no, that, right? No, they don't. But also sort of Informing yourself about, because each public hospital should be able to give you statistics on what are their rates of, you know, epidural, induction, you know, so also arming yourself with a little bit of knowledge beforehand. I think from memory, we left Hong Kong a while ago, but from memory, the Queen Mary, where I had the twins, I think they had a cesarean rate of around, it was under 20% or something, which is very much within the WHO guidelines. And so you know, knowing that you're like, okay, well, we've got a pretty good chance then of it not being an unnecessary cesarean. But some people do have the choice. Again, knowing what the setup is beforehand. I used to help people if, if you knew they were going to the public hospital sort of saying, okay, well, this, this, and this just isn't even, it's a, it's a straight cannot. Yeah. And if you know that beforehand, you can accept that. And then it doesn't become an issue on the day. But if you don't know that something's a, a, a flat cannot, then it can become a big problem. So it's arming yourself with the knowledge of where you're giving birth, even if it's not the choice or you don't have full choice over that. That's a really great tip. And I think many people think they can actually reach out to the hospital that they're planning on going to and get this information. Yeah. In terms of 
epidural or pain relief, is there such a thing as one is better than the other? Oh, this is such a hard question because I've been to births with women where she hasn't wanted an epidural and we've tried everything. We've, we've tried every trick in the book and nothing, you know, she's just not sort of dilating or progressing or it's just getting too much and they'll have an epidural. And when, the, when it happens, I sort of think, oh, this thing's amazing because it really is. It can really just relieve a woman and then she's able to relax and sleep. And I guess my take on an epidural is these days we just think that every woman needs it or we can't get through birth without it. And I think women sell themselves short a little bit. And to try to think of it as a tool in your toolbox, but you've got lots of other tools. So don't reach for your biggest thing first. So what are some of the other ones? Oh, also like breathing. Breathing is an amazing, it's one of the biggest things. When I teach the calm birth classes, I say, if you're not going to listen to anything else, at least take away your breathing techniques because that, really really does help and it helps in the rest of life as well you know i've used my calm birth breathing techniques for all sorts of things (laughs) so breathing massage touch positioning you know even some people use essential oils it sounds stupid but even something like music if that music makes you feel good then your brain will have that thought you get a hormonal response in your body and it will create a good feelings and that has a beneficial effect on you when you're in this Remember, it took us 12 hours to explain why you need to feel good and why the hormones are all important. You know, something as simple as music can have a huge impact on a woman in labor. Touch her husband talking to her in a very encouraging, comforting, private way that I've also seen that just do wonders. One of the women, the ladies I was supporting, she was just stuck and hit a really hard place. And her husband just leant down and spoke into her ear for about, I don't know, a good five minutes. And whatever he said to her just did the trick and she sort of got over the hump and, and she had her baby very quickly after that. Oh, wow. And I have no idea what he said, but it just, you know, so there's all sorts of things that can get you through it. An epidural is an amazing thing, but you don't always need it. I've had two births. I had one heart, sort of standard traditional birth where I got all the drugs and everything and supposedly it's meant to be you know you're not meant to feel as much but the drugs don't take away the fear yeah you're right I have no fond memories of that birth there was no relief physical relief yes but it didn't take away any of the fear and then I had a second birth once I'd learned all this stuff and been to lots of births and seen birth and understood it and then I had a home birth and it was completely different no drugs and of course you feel everything, but there was no negativity involved in that. And, you know, you come out there and I'm like, oh, I did it. I could, and there's this, you feel a little bit like bragging, saying, oh, look at me, you know, but, <laughs> uh, but that's sort of what it's designed to do is to, is to give you that, I'm amazing, you know, my body's amazing, it can do it. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you need help and that's fine. I sort of like to think that women should trust themselves a bit more and trust the design and, 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 but then it, you know, they have to do that and get all the right support and have the nice environment. It takes so much in a way. It's a simple process, but it takes so much. I love that you said that drugs doesn't take away from the fear. That one, it's really the real thing. Yeah. If you're afraid, there's fear and you don't even know sometimes where it's, 
comes from, but it just comes from a lifetime of people telling you it's something to be afraid of. And it's going to be a horrible, horrible, painful thing. And then you believe it. I want to move on to when people feel like they're ready, they're having the contractions. I feel timing is everything. And one of the things that worked for me was going to the hospital at the very last minute because uh-huh. I could walk around at home. I can scream and moan and guy could give me the massage, have a hot shower. I could do everything that could make me feel safe and comfortable until yeah. it was the time to go. Can you suggest to people how they how do they know when is a good time to go you know you don't want to go when it's too late well if this is the one of the hardest things especially with first-time parents because you just don't know everyone's super excited to have the baby come out in general I think people go too early for a few reasons one is that in the movies you see the waters break they have these crazy contractions and then they go well, I'm gonna go to the hospital straight away right and then cut to them having uh, they're on the bed and they're having the baby and they don't show you that there's potentially hours or days in between that sort of first we're having, it's maybe starting and then the baby coming out. And so people have no real concept of how long it takes to get that baby out. Labor is this, a pretty slow process. You know, sometimes it can be very quick, but most of the time you've got at least five to 10 hours. And that's like considered quite a good length of labor. And so I think people go too early also because they don't know what to do at home because that's never shown in the movies, like how to just labor. And that's part of what we talked about in the Converse program is that you've got to actually be able to picture yourself laboring at home, visualize what that's going to look like, practice it. I always say to couples, go and practice being in labor, you know, how do you have to set up? What cushions work well if you're going to be on the floor? Do you need cushions under your knees? Is a kitchen bench a good height? Go and physically practice being in labor because if you don't do that and then all of a sudden these contractions start happening, you're like, ah, we don't know what to do. And then you, you go, well, we'll go to the hospital because they'll know what to do, right? <laughs> That's again where education comes in. And then also... It's that belief system that we have that birth has to happen in a hospital or that you need your doctors to be there, that you can't have a baby without people. And so we're sort of so caught up in the labor has to happen at at the hospital. And we forget that up until 100 years ago, even less, 50 years ago, that birth predominantly happened at home. Yeah. So it's the way the belief system has shifted a little bit around birth that then impacts the way we behave during labor and it's the hardest question though because you can't you don't know and and that's where setting up a good birth support system maybe having a doula or or hiring a midwife that to give you the confidence to stay home right up until you know it's just time to go into the hospital because we do labor better at home where you are safe and secure and private and we're the only mammals that make a nest and then go somewhere else to have our babies (laughs) We're strange creatures. When I used to think about delivering a baby, I literally thought, okay, the baby's ready to come and then it's just going to pop out. But I remember when I did a calm birth course, it was visualizing the baby traveling down the path and the muscles are working and those are good pains. But it's a muscle. 
right? Yes. It's a muscle. And, <laughs> and it's a good pain. The baby's actually traveling down. And, and remembering that this is what should be happening and feeling confident right. really made a big difference. Yeah, when you understand what's going on here, you're less likely to be like, ah, what's happening? To understand, okay, it's a muscle. What do muscles need to work? Blood and oxygen, uh, right? So if you're not breathing properly, obviously it's not going to be functioning properly. The fact that your hormones in your body will affect also the the function of the, the muscle. So too much adrenaline in the body will cause it not to you know, you've got different layers and it causes them to work against each other. And of course, that's going to lead to the pain. When you can understand like, okay, that's of course, when muscles contract, hence the word contractions, when muscles contract and shorten and work, there's pain. Just like if you go to the gym and you lift weights, there's pain. You go on a hike up a hill, it's painful. But we don't put that same scary label on that sort of pain that we save for labor. And, and I think that's where you've got to shift a little bit. The belief system around birth, it's like a physical labor, labor. It's hard work. Yeah. So it's not, you know, I'm not saying you you do the class and you're going to go in and pop out your baby like that. (laughs) It's still hard work, but it's something that is designed to work and be doable and also to be repeatable. Labor designed you to want to go back and do it again. I mean, when you do it, you're like, I'm never doing that again. And then you forget and all the lovely hormones and it's amazing. And then you go back and you do it again. And last night, this woman on BirthTube, it's this thing on Facebook where women put their births up. Like she just had her 11th baby and, uh, wow. you know, yeah, 11th baby. And, and she did say at the end of it, she's like, well, I won't do that again, but who knows? And her husband said, yeah, that's your last one. And, and we'll see. Right. Because obviously she might say that after everyone and then she goes back and does it again. Nature's designed it to be a repeatable thing. If we only ever stop with one baby each, then we wouldn't be here as a species. But a lot of women these days come out very traumatized and don't necessarily want to repeat that. What do you think causes the trauma? Oh, I think it's a few things. I think uh, one day we've, a successful birth these days is a physically healthy mom and a physically healthy baby in a lot of places. So that's considered, all right, the mum's health. Yes, we can discharge and that's good. But I think the emotional side of birth has been neglected a little bit and it's not given as much importance as I think it should. I think that's after my first birth, that's really for me what was the the hardest thing is and I had very bad postnatal depression and it took me a long time to work through the birth and to really sort of find out what it was that why I was traumatized because physically I was fine yes I had twins they were premature but eventually they they were fine but I was still quite traumatized and really what it was is that I just um there was nothing positive there was no one I don't, it's, it's sort of hard to explain that I don't remember a single face from that room, which I think is sad. My mum's a midwife and we grew up in a country town and, and she used to get off speeding tickets if she delivered that policeman's baby, right? <laughs> There'd be fish and chip shops where, where she's got a standing, yeah, Margaret, let's, she can have whatever she wants because she's been so 
special and important to those people. They've remembered her for years and years afterwards because of what she brought to their birth. The fact that I don't remember anybody says to me, there was nobody who connected with me. And I think that's sort of very sad and it should be a very memorable day for all the right reasons, not for wrong reasons. Can you share what was it that left that trauma after the birth, apart from the fact that you didn't feel a connection with anyone that was there for the birth? It sounds a bit silly because it might be particular to me, but when I had to do, I had to write a reflective essay on, on the birth and it took me a lot um, to break it down. And, and (laughs) really what it ended up being was that I was left in the room by myself afterwards the twins, because they were 32 weeks, obviously they had to go up to the NICU. That I could, I could justify and, you know, yes, that's, yes, that had to happen. And Ben, my husband, went with them. Yes, that had to happen. That was right for him to do that. But then everybody sort of left and because I'd had an epidural, I was on the bed and I couldn't move. And I was sort of initially I had this like whole like hormonal highlight. Oh, my God, I'm amazing. I'm a rock star. I just had twins and you know and then um nobody came back to tell me whether they were any news about them I had no idea if they were okay or not I kept laying there going someone will come and get me at some point and just the time went on and it it really felt like I'd been forgotten about and that was particularly hit a nerve with me I guess because as a kid I had actually been (laughs) left behind a few times (laughs) by, by my parents nothing crazy traumatic, but it, you just feel like they've forgotten about me and, and I'm the one that did it. And, you know, I should have been not the center of attention, but you're primed with all these bonding hormones and you're primed with all this stuff and there was nothing there. And eventually I had to yell out at a nurse walking in the corridor past me. I said, you know, hello, what about me? And and she sort of said, Oh, you need to rest and we need to do paperwork. (laughs) And, oh, and the cleaning lady came in and mopped up and then left. And it was just wasn't how it should be. And that's really what I found was the worst thing. It's just like I was just left there like, like I didn't matter, I guess. What could have been done differently? That, is, that was in your control. Yeah. So if I'd known what I know now, I would have kicked up a stink. I would have been on my buzz. I would have been yelling out, Oi, get my, somebody back in here. This is not right. And that's what I, when I worked through it, all the other things that happened, I could justify a way as being, yes, necessary for the health of the baby, for this and that. That's the one thing. That hospital, it's just ridiculous policy. He wasn't, he tried to get back in, but they wouldn't let him back in. Oh, and there's absolutely no reason for something like that. And that's what concerns me a little bit in this time of, COVID is that I hope women can advocate that for themselves and really, you know, unless it's really vitally important that that husband is not there, that he's allowed to be there. And because it's such an important time emotionally, but I think knowing that it's a potential possibility that he may not be there, they can prepare themselves and that will make a difference. So finding out all the little rules about the hospital, what they allow, what they don't allow. You know, one of the ladies the other day said that they might have to wear a mask. And she said, how, how am I going to do that? And I said, practice now. 
practice your breathing with a mask on so that if you have to do it on the day, it's a familiar thing and it's not like, oh, I don't want to wear a mask. You may or you may not. That might be out of your control if they impose it on you. So practice doing your breathing with a mask on. I want to expand on the idea of being an advocate for yourself. How do you know, how would the woman know when they are really asking for what they need? For example, like you're saying, I'll be on the buzzer demanding for someone to pay attention versus someone who is just being dramatic. I sort of say, get them to convince you of their reasoning for saying no. You know, like make them convince you that what they're doing is really good. Otherwise... That's hard because personality comes into play a lot. If you're not a demander and a, you know, some people, some women do that naturally. They wouldn't have put up with that. I'm more of a, oh yes, I'll do it. And a bit of a rule follower. And I don't like to make waves. I like to make people happy. And by educating women about birth is designed to work and the bonding process happens at this time when your hormones are all charged and and so it's unless, you know, say when the baby comes out in that first hour post-birth, unless that baby's needing resuscitation or something, really the best and only place it should be is on your chest. Nothing else is more important than that bonding and knowing that. Advocate for yourselves. So knowing how important certain things are will also help. And the husbands, that's why they have to come and do the class as well, because they're also an advocate and they're there to help the mums as well because she shouldn't have to be in that combative sort of, I want this and that. Exactly. So for example, when the woman is in labor, half the time you can't even think clearly in so much pain, you're begging for whatever you can get to ease it. So I don't think women are actually in the right state to make certain decisions. So if they're during this time, if they can't have a birthing partner, how are they going to feel empowered to make the right decision when they can't even think straight? I think just, again, it comes along to having that confidence in yourself and in your body in the, in the process to just keep going along with that. And then knowing that you're doing everything that you can to help that process, that helps. If for whatever reason that's not enough and you need help, then you know even if you're on your own, you, you know, you're doing your best. And then you also had that dialogue between the caregivers. I haven't heard of any women really having to do it on their own just yet. I think a lot of it, the early labor might happen on their own. And again, I don't know what, what every country is a bit different, but I've heard that women have to be in the pre-labor ward on their own, which happens in, the public hospitals in Hong Kong as well, right? So it's not necessarily a problem that's related to this virus. It's these birthing practices are in place now are a bit draconian. (laughs) And it's only until a woman is in what, you know, active established labor that she can go through to the actual birthing room where her partner's allowed to be. in. so she still had to maybe have done some of that early labor on her own, which shouldn't be, the case it should be different (laughs) in some ways this is throwing up challenges but some of those challenges are there for women anyway in normal times yeah and it makes you think golly we really don't treat birth the way we should when women are at the hospital and some of them might have a feeling of not being heard 
or loss of control and dignity, whether they have to lie there and get checked constantly. And it's like this invasive procedure. Is there anything that people can do to improve their situation? Any tips? Like I said, I'm not a midwife. Very often, I even if I'm there at a hospital with somebody, I can't say, oh, this is necessary or not. I always have to defer to the medical staff. And that's where coming, talking and educating beforehand to say, well, this is pretty normal and standard. And, and then this is, you're within your right, say, to sort of say, do we really need to have a vaginal check every hour? Is that just standard protocol? Because that's not the case in every hospital. So finding out things that are, are standard and whether they're just done there and not elsewhere, it helps you determine a bit what is really necessary and what's not. That's actually a good question to ask when you do the hospital visit. You know, what is the protocol and what to expect? Yeah. What I just find astonishing is it will change from one hospital to the next, from one country to the next. And that just goes to show that if it's so varied, is it really based on evidence? Uh, I remember when I was at uh, giving birth to the twins, I was limited to two ice cubes an hour because I had an epidural in. It was horrible. Two ice cubes an hour. And I would say, please, can I have something? They're like, no, you're not at the end of your hour yet. And then I would go and support women up at the private hospital and they could have whatever they wanted, even with an epidural. And so it just highlights the fact that there's so much of what, what is practice that isn't necessarily consistent across the board. And so why is, why does it have to be like that in one place and not another? When you had the twins, you guys were separated. And from what I remember, they were at the hospital for a while and you had to go home, right? Three weeks. How did you manage that? I was on 10 weeks bed rest in the hospital. So when I gave birth to them on the Friday, do you know, it's it's 13 years yesterday that I went into hospital on bed rests. So the twins will be 13 in in 10 weeks time. So I was there 10 weeks. Because physically, by the time I had an epidural, but that wore off and I was fine. So I was able to leave the next day. They stayed in the hospital three weeks afterwards. And then we just visited them daily. I saw a post recently on Hong Kong Moms. Someone is really worried. I think someone just had twins and they have to stay at the hospital for two weeks. But the parents can't go to the hospital to visit the baby, scared that they might have COVID-19 and they're really stressed out. Do you have any insights? I mean, have you met anyone who dealt with this to help people in this kind of situation and just ease the pain? Even for us, you know, and again, this is a, it'll be different from country to country. We were limited to visiting hours. So I think from memory, it was 2 p.m. to 8 p.m. We would only be allowed to go visit them. And if there was doctor's rounds and we'd get kicked out, we had to wait till they passed. And I was in touch with a friend of my mum's in Australia who was a, a neonatal nurse at one of the top clinics in Australia. And so I was getting a lot of my information from her and she just couldn't believe that A, there was any sort of visiting hours for the parents. She just thought that was unacceptable. The fact that they weren't encouraging kangaroo care, all these sorts of things, right? And that's just because that is the policy at Queen Mary and we sort of had to deal with it a bit. 
I honestly don't know what to say to those people because that's heartbreaking. And all I would say to them is then knowing that this is going to cause issues, be very, very proactive in bonding and also make sure that you get as much support as you can because this will probably lead to some, some trauma just because you get them home and they're physically fine and you're physically fine. A lot of people will say that, oh, but the, the babies are fine and you're fine, so it's all good. And it's like, no, just because everybody's healthy doesn't mean we're not damaged. It's just that it's emotional wounds and you can't see those. You can't even see them yourself. What kind of support can people prepare for themselves in this kind of situation? Like this is an extreme situation. That's pretty extreme. I would say talking with some sort of therapist or something, helping you just to talk out how you're feeling sometimes is the best thing. And having somebody that won't just placate you and say, yes, but they're fine now, so don't worry about it, get over it. That doesn't work. So you need someone, I think, a professional that will be able to help you talk through and really nut out, okay, what really is the, you know, like for me, it took a long time. It's probably two years to sort of really process that birth. I would say peer support. So reach out to other people that have had premature babies that have had separation, you know, because empathy is a huge thing. You don't want sympathy. Mm. You need empathy. And really only people that have gone through it can grasp what it is that you're going through. I think being vulnerable enough to ask for help, you know, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we choose to tough it up and not voice out how we're suffering. And especially if it's not so bad. I think, look, in some ways I was, I don't want to say I was lucky, but my postnatal depression got to a point that I nearly smothered one of my little twins. I just got to the point I just couldn't deal anymore. And I, I went to put just, I went to put my hand over his mouth and I just was, wanted to say, shut up, just shut up. And instead, I dug my, ha- my nails into my arms and I squeezed as hard as I could. And thank God my husband was home with me that day. Mm. And I went into him and I handed him the baby and I said, I can't anymore. And I basically lay down on the bed and just lost it. And the next day I, I called Yvonne Heaviside. Do you remember her? Did yes. you ever see her? Yes. Yeah. I called her and I said, Yvonne, I think I've got postnatal depression. And she was quite, she goes, oh, I haven't had very many women self-diagnosed before. <laughs> but I think it was that bad. I knew, you know, I can't go on like this. Whereas I think there are so many women who just have it not quite bad enough that they realize that it, it shouldn't be that way. And again, that's also part of my motivation to help other people avoid what I went through. Um, oh, thank you so much for sharing that. I share it so much because it's so important to know that it's normal. So many more women than we realize probably have some form of postnatal depression because the birth, they're not getting that fulfillment, that they're not getting what nature designed them to get. And it's a little bit disturbed and it's not what it should be. Well, it's interesting because my birth story on paper was amazing. I was in the hospital for two hours. Everything was natural, no drugs, nothing. And both of them were like that. But two years on, I also self-diagnosed with, I felt was postnatal depression. 
life was perfect, mm. but I was so angry and so frustrated and I would just cry for no reason and I could not understand. And then I realized I needed help. I needed to talk to someone to just work through these emotions, even though it doesn't make sense. Within a month, just because I reached out for help, I felt so much better. Yeah. And again, you know, I think I was lucky that it was so noticeable. But also, I ticked nearly every single box there is to tick when they say, you know, you, these things could lead to postnatal depression. We'd moved country. It was an assisted, you know, I'd had fertility issues, a previous miscarriage, multiple births, problems in pregnancy, you know, bed rest, premature birth, <laughs> you know, you name it. I think the only thing I didn't tick was the death in the family. Um, wow. Pretty much. And yet I was still sent home. And I remember the Queen Mary sending a form at six weeks that I had to tick the boxes to see how I was. But I probably ticked, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And that's where having a continuity of care, say you've been followed through pregnancy by a midwife or somebody they've seen you before, during, after, they're probably more likely also to pick up on those little things like, oh, you're not yourself or, mm. you know. And and I think we've chopped it up into all these little pieces where you go to this person for that and this person for that and they, you know. and so we're not seeing that evolution of a, of a mother from woman to mother and how she changes. And is she, how is she doing? And you hide it, you hide it from yourself. You hide it from your husband because you're meant to be, you know, it's all meant to be wonderful. And like, you're meant to love these little things and, and then you don't necessarily. (laughs) And And it's hard even when you do love them and it's all gone right. But when it doesn't, it's even harder. And it, it's a hard thing to admit I didn't admit it as easily when I was on my medication as I do now, right? Yeah. It was a lot more embarrassing to say it back then. Now I'm like, yeah, I have, you know, because I know how important it is. Why was it embarrassing? Because you feel like a failure. You feel like there's something wrong with you. If you don't love your children, if you're not feeling all these things, there's something wrong with you. But now I know through learning about calm birth and bonding, I know we had no chance of of having that sort of automatic bond, should we say, where you just like, I love them. Of course there was problems with it because of the separation, because of all the things that happened. And I suspected it was that way. And then when I had Lucy, my third one, with the home birth, and I got what nature designed, and it is different. It's just such a different automatic thing. There was no question, this is my baby and I love her. Whereas I had to talk myself into it a bit more with the twins. And there's nothing wrong with that. No, and I know there isn't now because, because it didn't work and it was not my fault because of all these things. But at the time, I didn't know that. I'm able to talk about that birth and all that time afterwards now with... I don't want to say no emotion, but I've let go. I have no connection to that emotion anymore. I've been able to let go and, and it doesn't make me cry anymore to talk about it because I've, I don't know, I guess I've forgiven myself for that or I've let go of any guilt associated with that. How soon after the birth do you think the mother can talk to someone? Like if we were to suggest, you know, everyone should 
book in a dual appointment or someone that they can speak with to download the whole process and touch base with their feelings. Yeah. When do you think is a good time? So normally with my doula clients, I would see them pre-birth and then I always try to go up. So say I've been at the hospital with them for the birth. So I've been there and I know what's going on, but then I'll always try to go back while they're still at the hospital. So very soon after, and we sort of, you know, debrief, so to speak, because if there's been anything that's gone on and then you always touch base, I always touch base again a little bit after that. And a lot of the time I'll stay in touch regularly depending, but certainly having a debrief and chatting through a birth while it's all still a bit raw is good, but then coming back as well and revisiting it a little bit later is also important because you've got a bit of, you know, you're not as overwhelmed and it's such a crazy time that, (laughs) you know, when you have a baby and the hormones do do wonderful things for you and they can help you get through things. But I think and not being afraid to say, well, I didn't, this wasn't good. Just because you're both healthy doesn't mean you can't complain about some things that went on. So can we suggest that even though people might not be able to have a doula or a birthing partner to just schedule a phone call to speak to someone, right? Yeah. It's a shame because in a lot of places you'd have, have a little bit of that continuity of care, you know, your midwife would have followed you through pregnancy and maybe she's there for the birth or not, who knows. And then maybe she might do some postnatal visits up until maybe six weeks, which is sort of think that's nice because then they'll get to see and then mm. they know you. And it's obviously in an ideal world, that's what would happen. We don't give birth enough importance. We focus on sometimes different things. Doing your shopping list seems to be more important than doing choosing the right antenatal classes or or the right caregivers, like the amount of money right. that goes into a pram is insane. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then you think, Oh, maybe if you could put a little bit of this on some postnatal care, yeah. save the money, spend it on services with people that will look after you and help you and support breastfeeding support. You know, we, we put our money in funny things and we don't value personal support as much as we should I don't think that was going to be my next question because we talked about all the what we can do during the birth so after the birth is another massive I would call it a challenge because it was challenging for me especially breastfeeding I remember sitting in my room eight weeks after the baby was born and I was just in tears trying to breastfeed mm. in pain, just saying, I can't do this anymore. This is real. That, that, it was harder than giving birth. Yeah. So what can be, people do? Cause there's no end in sight. I thought we were supposed to know what to do. I thought it was a yeah. natural instinct, but it was not. And no one ever told it me It is that. for babies. Babies are born with the ins, you know, they'll do the little breast crawl and they go up. But for mothers, it's a socially learned skill. And once upon a time, we would have sat, imagine you're in an African village and the, everyone would have been breastfeeding. All your life, you would have been exposed to it. And all the women around you would have done it. Or it's, it's completely a normal thing. And, and today we hide it away. You know, women cover up and you would never dream to go up to your friend and say, well, you know, give us a look. What's a good latch look like? Right? <laughs> Which is a shame because you should, you should know. You think, you know, it's still a learning curve. It's a steep learning curve and it is challenging. But again, I sort of say we, um, we 
talk about breastfeeding a bit in the class, but it's about, again, understanding the physiology of how it's designed to work, how the baby's designed to work, and then matching, matching the physiology, not having the baby match your three-hourly schedule and this sort of thing, and getting support. Surround yourself with people who are pro-breastfeeding, who've done it, who understand it, what it takes, makes a huge difference as well. Before I ask you another breastfeeding question, I want to put it out there that it's a choice that women can make, right? There's so much shame that goes with, oh my God, I don't have enough milk. I can't breastfeed or I don't want to breastfeed. I Mm. need to go back to work or whatever reason. I feel like it's really, really important to put it out there that women can choose whatever that makes them feel comfortable in doing. And that's the same with birth as well. It's hard to put what you think is best on somebody else. But I remember I had a a couple once in Hong Kong. They came and did the calm birth class and they still chose to have a a scheduled cesarean. I thought that was amazing because they educated themselves and they still went with what they felt most comfortable with, right? Instead of it being from a place of, oh, we don't know, you know, we're afraid, blah, 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 birth, blah, 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 don't want to know about it. They came, they learned about it and they went, yeah, yeah, we're still good with our decision to do that. No, you have to respect that. That's great. And that's a bit the same with breastfeeding is that you have to respect it. Just so long as women, I feel like some women stop sometimes because they just haven't had the right support or information and then they go hard on themselves. So again, educate yourself as to how breastfeeding is meant to work, what will make it easier, what won't get support and if you still choose not to do it that's fine but I think some women doubt themselves they doubt their ability just like we doubt birth because oh my girlfriend tried and she couldn't and it was painful and and then it goes like that right can you share your breastfeeding experience and what you said about confidence oh man I have like direct evidence of this basically because The twins, so they were born at 32 weeks. And for me, it was very important that they had breast milk, especially because premature babies, it's it's very important. And I was obsessed. And my mum, being a midwife, she sort of let me have the first night off. But then it was like I needed to express every three hours they would have been on a schedule. So even though they didn't come home for for three weeks, I was still getting up every three hours expressing I had a freezer full of milk (laughs) by the time they came home because I had so much and they were only drinking tiny amounts. And I remember they came home and after about a week, they were just not doing very well. They Nat went a little bit lethargic and he was vomiting up milk and he he just didn't look good. And I remember we called the pediatrician and he said, yeah, yeah, bring them up to the hospital. So we went up to the Adventist. I remember we, we checked them in and I went to express and I just had nothing nothing came out and of course that just I was just like oh my god how am I going to feed my babies you know they're relying on me and I was so stressed and I I must have been upset and the doctor it was Dr. Thondok oh, yeah, he's it. awesome oh. he's amazing Indian guy and I, I do his accent a little bit I, I hope I do it justice but all I remember is he said listen mommy 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 go get a massage have some McDonald's and have a beer <laughs> And basically he was saying, chill out. Right. And we, I remember we went, we went down, uh, and we had, uh, there's an Italian restaurant, Fat Angelo's and we had a lovely Italian dinner. I must've had a glass of wine. I went for a foot massage and I went back up to the hospital cause I was staying there with them. And I, 
expressed off like a huge amount of milk. It was amazing. And so really what had stopped it was stress. And then the second time it stopped was when, bless, when my parents-in-law came, my French mother-in-law, who had not managed to successfully breastfeed any of her five children. She came just as I was learning to get them on the breast. So I was starting to, to breastfeed them. And every time I would try them and feed, I thought, oh, that's gone well, you know. And then if one of the babies would cry afterwards, she'd said, oh, they must be hungry. Do you think they're hungry? And it was amazing mm. how that messed with me. And again, because I was also expressing, it just stopped again. And wow. I could, you know, I could see it. And that time it took longer for me to get it back because it was more of a psychological thing. And then it turned into like very small apartment <laughs> with parents-in-law, <laughs> not ideal conditions. Not fun. People only have people around you that are going to bring something to the table. But I was lucky in a way that because I was expressing, I could see when it worked and when it didn't, I knew that, oh, it's because of stress. Whereas a lot of women who are, just breastfeeding they don't get to see that difference and then it's again it's a confidence thing you've sort of got to have low stress levels you've got to have confidence that the milk's going in and that the baby's getting it it's hard to do that and then with lucy i think everything was fine but it was still like still took quite a bit of work and you know i had uh, ended up getting thrush which causes quite a bit of pain when you're feeding so i would say it wasn't until about eight weeks in that I felt like, okay, you know, this is good and easy. And then, you know, and the shame of it is that the best bit about breastfeeding is really after that, when they're three, four, five months old and it's very easy and, and they, they get a bit playful and it's a magic power. Breastfeeding is the magic powers. You, it fixes everything with your yes. kids just about. And when I stopped feeding her, it was hard because then I had to learn how to soothe her <laughs> like everyone else had to. I was like, oh, I've, got, I've lost my magic power. It's gone. What do I do? <laughs> right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, they get the vaccine, put them on the boob. You know, like it works for everything. Yeah. Traveling on the planes to come on the boob, you know, it fixes everything. And, and the first time we traveled with Lucy was 13 months old and I just stopped feeding and we went on, we flew to Australia and I was like, Oh my God, what do I do? She's like, now I've got to, I missed my powers a lot. Um, I was also happy to get my body back and it's not hard for every woman, but they could be supported more at that, that time. Another thing I think is also a big one is sleep deprivation. Um, oh God. Is there That's any <laughs> insight or wisdom that you can share or prepare the mothers out there. If you're feeding, learn to breastfeed laying down. I don't know. That's what I did with Lucy. I just learned to feed her and sleep with her. And that helped so much. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of getting up and turning on the lights and going to special room and doing all the faff. And I saved myself so much time. Co-sleeping's a controversial subject, but for me, it just works so much better. Sleep's the hardest thing because you can't outsource it. You can't buy it. You can't save it up in advance (laughs) (laughs) and being tired makes everything harder so all I can say is you know don't go crazy on yourselves trying to do too much or just focus on feeding yourself feeding the baby and just resting and recuperating I think women try to maybe do too much everything else can wait and interestingly 
one of the benefits of the women, you know, not having visitors in the hospital, not having visitors post-birth, is that they're finding that babies are regaining their birth weight within five days as opposed to 10 days on average. Why is that? Well, it's probably because the mums are less stressed and the milk's a bit better and they're less tired and less stimulated and it's probably just... Wow. So there are silver linings to everything. A lot of the women who I've been talking with who who are pregnant now and preparing, a lot of it is hard because their parents can't come. They're all expecting their mums to come and be there at this time and that can't happen. And so that's something that's not a positive. But then at the same time, that there's just maybe going to be the, you know, the mum and the dad at home and the baby and there's a lot less to do. And, and so hopefully that little bonding time is actually going to be more beneficial than if they'd had a stream of visitors coming in and having to dress every day, you know, and for people and make an effort and get tired. Absolutely. What is something that the spouse or the family can do during this time before, during or after the birth to support the mother? Well, I think just if she doesn't have to do anything that's not baby related, unless she wants to. So not having to to cook particularly or not having to clean or, you know, if they've got old other kids, not having to. I know my husband sort of took care of the the twins a bit more. So, you know, I would sort of look after Lucy and he would handle the twins a bit more because it was easier. So sharing that, that load having people dropping meals around if friends want to do something. Mm. Someone was talking the other day that they've organized a meal train um, because they can. So they take it in turns to drop a meal around to their friend who's just had a baby. So she doesn't have to cook. Just creating as, as supportive an environment as you can. Oh, okay. This has been absolutely awesome, Kathy. So I'm going to close this interview with a few rapid questions. Are you ready? Yeah. What is the book that has left the strongest impression on you or that you have gifted the most? Birth-related or just No, anything? it could be anything. Oh, because I thought about the birth-related one. The, the best one is the Edom A. Gaskin's Guide to Childbirth. Um, but uh, I think, oh, my favourite, favourite, favourite book is Anne of Green Gables still. Nice. What advice would you give to yourself before your first birthing experience? Educate yourself, do a class, don't rely on other people. I think I relied on the fact that my mum would be there and then I'd be all right because mum will be there and she knows what to do. And in the end, she couldn't be there and no one knew what to do. So educate yourself and choose your caregivers and your place of birth and your birth team wisely. Hmm. What closing thought would you like to share that would inspire or help women to have a positive birthing experience? Try to have trust and faith in your body and in nature's design for birth. Because it's so amazing, but it's also so delicate. You know, lots of little things can mess with the balance, but if you can get it right, it's pretty amazing. I would love everyone to either witness an amazing birth or to have an amazing birth because it's, we hide it away too much. More people should get to see birth and go to births. It's mind blowing. I know. I love watching those videos. It's insane. It's so amazing. It's addictive. Yes. (laughs) I was watching that lady last night 
live and it was yeah when you can watch it live as well you can't fast forward it to the end you have to wait you have to be patient I highly recommend everyone out well or the women out there who's ready to give birth to do a course educate themselves either it's with you Kathy or find someone local and just empower yourselves and be your own advocate because you don't know what you don't know yet (laughs) yes that makes sense where can people find you I've got a website, www.kathykitsis.com. I think I, there's not very many Kathy Kitsises in the world, which is lucky. <laughs> and I'm always up for a chat about birth and, and this sort of thing. I, it's, hard to, it's hard to stop me talking about it once I get started. You know that, right? I, I nagged you into coming to I do it. I love it. I love it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I have to be grateful for my first birth experience because I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't have that experience I if I just had a normal birth I don't think I'd be doing this I wouldn't be motivated so I I'm grateful for that first birth experience and also I wouldn't have probably pushed to have a home birth for my, for my second everything I guess has a reason right absolutely oh actually there's one thing that I do want to add and when I was chatting to you about this interview I mentioned to you that I kind of felt weird sharing my birth story because it was so smooth and so easy share away because women don't believe it can be you know I show a video in class of an amazing birth and they're like they made the comment is that is that like photoshop does that cgi because they just couldn't believe that a woman could birth that easily I'm like no I mean obviously she's amazing I've been showing that same video every single class you uh, you would remember it the lady in the pool right yes and because she just does it so easily and it looks unreal but I want to also inspire women to like look that is possible I I didn't quite make a clear sort of uh, standard but I tried and (laughs) had a great birth wasn't quite as calm as she was but you have to know what's possible before you can even imagine it for yourself so yes yeah share your story women with positive stories share your stories let other women know it's possible yes because otherwise they'll go on believing that it has to be horrible Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kathy. Really I'm had welcome. a fun time chatting. It's so good to see you. <laughs> yes. Thanks. The emotional and mental health of the mother is extremely important. I'm so grateful for this conversation on positive birth with Kathy, and I hope you find it helpful. Kathy and I would love to hear what's the single biggest insight you are taking away from this conversation. Visit my website, interested.blog, to access the show notes or leave a comment on my Interested Podcast Facebook page. You can subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcast, or Spotify. And if you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend.